Today's reading is 2 Peter 1, um, 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you to worship today. Um, A few sort of logistical notes. Um, Well, the first thing is that Anne-Marie hurt her foot, so she couldn't be here today. She was having trouble walking. So we pray for her that her foot would mend. Ezra stayed behind to um, try to help her out with things that she might need. And honors come with me today, and we'll join them after the service. But... um, She's really struggled. She struggled down the stairs and so forth. So pray for healing in her foot. Also, uh, the doors are open so that we get some breeze, but you also hear some lawnmowers and uh, weed whackers and things like that going on. And one of the things that happens for me when I teach is that to make a point, I'll drop my voice and I'll, I'll make it like that. Right. And so I want to practice right now and just get it on the table. Um, when I make a point and I drop my voice and you can't hear it, say, what's that? All right? So let's practice. I'm going to drop my voice to make a point. And I'll make it like this instead. All right? Is that fair enough? Uh, and that way, together, what we'll be able to do is just compete against the extra noise that we have this morning. I'm delighted to be here with you to, to, to look at God's Word this morning. Let's pray and let's get started. Okay? Heavenly Father, we come to you now not, remote, not with you as a remote, removed God, but we, tra- we talk directly to you. We talk directly to you because of Jesus, because you, Lord Jesus, stood in for us. We need your presence as we worship you, and we need your help as we read and as we pray and as we think about all of the glorious things that are in your word. We ask that you would reveal more of your glory, more of your greatness, 
and more of your love to us now as we do just that. Be with us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. We have been, uh, we're almost finished with our series, How to Live Right When Things Go Wrong. And the, the thing that we've been looking at is, what do you do with the gospel? What do you do with the gospel to live differently under the pressures of life that we face? We all face them. I've talked to many of you that they're carrying weight right now carrying the weight of life and the pressures of life and feeling like sometimes you're going to buckle under it and it puts pressure on you. So what do you do? How does the gospel make a difference? And we've been looking at that. We've been looking at some of the obstacles that would stand in the way of the gospel making difference, things we can actually pay attention to and try to get out of the way. For example, one of the things we talked about early on is that we tend to take the things in life, especially the things we think we're good at or that, we, that we've been shown to be good at, and we tend to take those things and we tend to make our identity around them and build our identity around them. And in reality, in the gospel, one of the very first things, one of the very first building blocks that you need to have is the idea that all of your assets are like liabilities in comparison to the asset that you have in Jesus as your representative, as the person who came to be the perfect person, stand in your place before God to get the approval that you can't get, to um, pay for the sins that you couldn't pay for. And so Jesus is your representative, is your only asset, and from there you can start to face troubles. But the problem is, is we take other assets, other things we think that we need or think that we're good at or think that make up our identity, and we rest ourselves on those things. And the problem with those things is that they can be shaken. They can be threatened. And what happens when they're threatened? What happens? We get anxious, or we get angry, or we get scared, or we get get other things. And so when, when the things that we want most that aren't Jesus are blocked, we see some undoing, we see some fissures, we see some fractures in our spiritual life. Uh... I got to know Tim and Kathy Keller over the years and um, that I was in New York. And one of the things Kathy Keller said, if it, if it can't prevent Jesus from coming back, then I don't worry about it. And then she would follow up by saying, nothing can prevent Jesus from coming back. So she doesn't worry about it. In the same way, Jesus is our only asset. He's the only one that we root our identity down in. So we looked at things like that. We looked at um, our responses Our response is under the pressures that we face. When the weight is on you and you're feeling desperate and you're feeling all those things drawn out in you, the anxiety and the frustration and the anger and 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 you're seeing yourself in sinful patterns happening in your life and with other people, when that pressure's on and those are reactions, those responses themselves are windows into your relationship with God. And so our temptation is to look at our circumstance around us and say, only if this would change, or if you would change, or if something would change, then I could live the life that I need to live. And what what the gospel says is, no, you have everything you've been given. You have everything you need for life and godliness, right? And we'll look at that today. And so you don't look at your circumstances, but you've got to use your... The first question isn't like, how does my circumstance change? The first question is, Lord, in this midst of this trouble, in the midst of me breaking and cracking and having fissures spiritually under this trouble and under the weight of this trouble, what do you want me to learn about you? What does this show me about my faith in you? How do I draw closer to you? And that's one of the greatest things that you can have under any kind of suffering. In the immense, most immense kind of suffering, one of the greatest freedoms you can have is to turn from the things that you've been relying on as God shows you about 
your relationship with him and you turn to him and you rely on him. It's called repentance. It's ongoing. It's lifelong. It's part of Christian life. So we, we looked at things like that. We looked at the fact that when trouble is on, one of the first things to go in our life is adoration, is, is adoring God in prayer and being able to adore him for who he is, not just what he does, although those are so inseparably linked. But so often in prayer, we go to God for what he brings to us rather than who he is in and of himself. It's like going to a spouse and saying, you know, I love you because you bring me a sense of security and accomplishment in the view of my uh, colleagues at work. You've heard the, the term trophy husband or trophy wife, right? And so when, when a wife asks a husband, why do you love me? It's not, well, you make me feel better in front of my colleagues. The answer is because I love you right? And the same thing is true here, that when adoration goes from our prayer life, and we for, we're, not, we're short on words, we don't know how to address God in adoration, affection. What happens when you go on a, on a date with somebody you really want to go on a date with, right? And you look, and you're sitting across the table over dinner, and you're looking into their eyes, and you're thinking about the qualities about them that you admire, right? It comes easily to you. Does it come easily to you with God? Do you know how you adore him? Have you adored him recently? So there are things that we need to make sure that are, um, there are things that would stand in the way that we need to make sure to tend to if we're going to live rightly under the pressures of life when things go wrong. <clears throat> what we're going to look at today and in the coming weeks, we're gonna, today we're going to look at this, that growing in the knowledge of Jesus is immensely practical. Growing in the knowledge of Jesus is immensely practical. It's not just book smart for book smart. It's not just growing in facts about who Jesus is. We'll see that, that, it, that it's not just that, but it's also very practical, and it's also more than head knowledge. It's heart knowledge. So we'll get to that, and then we're going to look at heart knowledge in particular next week. So growing in the knowledge of Jesus is immensely practical. Uh, I should have covered this when I talked about the lawn. One of the things that you need to be aware as we go through this and as I unpack it for you is exactly that. Thomas Rocket had a great analogy for the way that I walk through the scriptures each week for you. Instead of like a, a seminary class or a, a history class or a professor or a linear kind of process, what I do is I drop the suitcase in front of us and I pull out something wonderful. And there are other wonderful things in the suitcase related to that wonderful thing. And I'll pull it out and I'll pull out other things and we'll look at that. And then after we look at that and see the depth of that, we'll go back into the suitcase and we'll pull out another wonderful thing. And we'll look at the related articles like that. So we're going we're gonna to walk around these things, look at them, and examine them for depth. You've got to know that. So if you're expecting linear travel as we work through this passage, you're not going to get it. But instead, enjoy it. Enjoy looking at the things in the suitcase as we unpack them. Things that in the suitcase that we're going to unpack today are these. <clears throat> you will have a deep, internal, experiential change resulting in the practical changes in your life. Okay, there's going to be a deep change in your life. And you see that in verses 5 through 8. And then verses 2 and verse 8 again, you have those through the knowledge of Jesus. Right? So there's deep change, number one, one of the big things we'll pull out of the suitcase, and you're going to have those through the knowledge of Jesus. All right? So let's look at them briefly together. 
what does an effective Christian life look like? When you go to the store, have you gone to the store and looked on a shelf for books that, that try to tell you how to grow in this area? So, for example, you want to get a handle on finances. These are the steps that you follow, right? Or you want to be more effective in your leadership, and so you go to the leadership section, and you read a book, and there's, there's a method on leadership, and you have to do these ten things, and you, there's the checklist. Or you want to be... Um, more persuasive. You know, there's a great book called uh, Getting to Yes. It was written by some Harvard people, and the idea is, um, you know, we usually go into conversations where we're trying to barter for what we want. But the idea is to understand uh, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement for both sides, and then you can, you can persuade Towards, your, towards what you want by hearing, knowing what the other person wants and understanding what you want and understanding the differences if you don't get that. And you can be more persuasive and grounded in the way that you talk about it. Um, what, what we have here is Peter's list for us. Peter has a list for us. And I want to be careful because it is not like the books that you're going to pick up off the shelf in the bookstore. It's not like that because we'll see when we get to the end that it's not like, it's not because of your own strength. It's not because of your own ability. It's not because of your own giftedness that you are able to do these things. In fact, we'll see that without Jesus, you're not able to do them, all right? But there's a list. He gives us a command. He gives us a command. Verse 5, every effort, make every effort. Verse 10, be diligent. Make every effort, be diligent. In what? Supplementing the faith with the qualities of virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And these are to be yours, and they're to be increasing so that you're effective and fruitful in the faith. You can see that those results in verses 8 and verses 10. Now, there's a danger. Why? Because our hearts are jury-rigged to rely on ourselves. We said at the beginning, one of the things that we need to know so that we can make it through trouble so that we can make it through trial and the pressure that's on us is that Jesus is our only asset. So I want you to keep that in your mind and we're going to get to him in a minute. But look at these things that, that he's required. First of all, let's, let's unpack a little bit more from the suitcase. Supplement faith, right? What's going on here? Before we understand what supplement means, we have to understand that Peter is writing to a church, and in the church are a group of teachers. And the teachers are adversaries to Peter, to the gospel, and to the church, although they're claiming to be, have a special knowledge about the gospel that everybody could know. And here are some of the things that the adversaries believe. They ignored parts of God's word that they didn't like. Peter says that later. They ignored parts of God's word that they didn't like. So, well, you know, I'll believe in Jesus, but I don't like what this says. I'm going to leave that side out. So there's that aspect going on for those, those guys. And then uh, they were entirely content with this world as home and didn't look any further. And that's very different than the biblical idea that we have of God himself being our home, being our shelter, being the one in whom we dwell. We talked about dwelling last week, dwelling in God's word, dwelling in him, dwelling in the riches of him. And so they, that wasn't the case for them. It was the pleasures of this life that was the case. And why? Because they viewed their Lord as impotent or negligent 
rather than patient and long-suffering. And Peter addresses that later in the, in the letter. And they felt like, hey, there are no demands to live up to because Jesus wasn't coming back to judge. So if he's not coming back to judge, then I can live however I want, right? So Peter's coming against that, coming against that kind of knowledge and saying, no, no. Look at what goes on. So he says, make sure, and he, he talks about faith, and he says, make sure that with your faith you supplement. The, the word for supplement that Peter uses is originally a term used in theater. Now, this is interesting. The term used in theater meant a theatrical angel, angel. And the idea was that there was somebody who would provide money for staging a production. And then the people who ran the theater would take those resources and go and put on the production. So the same kind of thing is, is, is meant here. In Peter's time, that word meant extremely generous giver with those connotations in the background. So the idea is cooperating with God out of his extremely generous gifts to take what he's given us, all of the embarrassment of riches that we have in him and what he's done for us, and take them and use them. What do we use them for? He tells us to be fruitful and effective. And he lists the various qualities that we're going to grow in. Now look, if you think that this is the only place where we're told life should look like this and not this, you've got to realize that this list that that Peter gives here is in other places, in many other places in the New Testament. And it refers to the kinds of qualities God wants his people to have. They're his qualities. Because you can go to Romans 5, 3 through 5, or 2 Corinthians. A very famous one is Galatians 5, 22 and following, where the fruit of the Spirit is listed. Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 4 and 6, and 2 Timothy 2 and 3. All right, so let's get in. What are the qualities? What are the qualities you need to be diligent about? You need to be, um, you need to make all effort towards. You need to bring your concentration to bear on. What does it mean to bear fruitfulness and effectiveness in the Christian life? What are those things that you need to pursue? Peter says, the things you need to be diligent about are virtue, sometimes called goodness or integrity. It's basically truth. Truth, honesty, transparency, right? It's being the same in one situation as in another. When do you tend to lie? When do you tend to, okay, maybe not lie, but when do you tend to fudge the truth? When do you tend to shape things a little bit? What's that circumstance? Is it when you feel like people won't like you? Or the people's opinion of you is going to change that you would fudge on the truth? Maybe it's when it will make you uncomfortable. Like that's going to interrupt comfort, and comfort's most important in my life. And so I'm going to fudge the truth here so that I don't have to have my comfort interrupted. Maybe it's control of things. Maybe it's the way organization goes. We talked about some of this last week in the idea of true virtue. Why do you tell the truth? The common way to do it is out of fear or pride, but the, the, the gospel way to do it is out of freedom. Truth, virtue. It's a part of the character that we put all effort into. So not only that, but we have knowledge. Now, there are two words for knowledge that you used in this passage by Peter in the original Greek. And this word in particular, the one that's used here in this list, means information about Jesus and what pleases him. Okay? Information about Jesus and what pleases him. That kind of knowledge comes from what? Reading about him, learning about him in the word, um, reading books about him, reading theology, 
discussing it with other Christians, doing our Bible studies each week through the home meetings. So if we want to grow in Christ-like goodness, we're going to have to hunger and desire and grow for knowledge of him. All right? We've got that virtue, but it has to be with knowledge of him. There's also self-control listed. Moderation with good things. Moderation with good things. Have you ever overeaten? Like on a holiday? Overeaten. What were you supposed to say? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> what was that? That's right. What was that? Have you ever overeaten on a holiday? I mean, so much so that you've like fall asleep from all the turkey and you like you just feel like you're busting. It's, it's uncomfortable, right? Self-control is moderation with regard to good things. There are good things in life, very good things in life. It's okay. It's okay that they're good. It's okay that they bring, bring joy. C.S. Lewis talked about the idea that all those good things are meant like a sunbeam to point back to the sun, to the giver, to the one who blesses with the blessing, right? And so it's okay. Those good things are good, but we need self-control. Choosing important over urgent. That in our busyness, with as much communication as we have coming at us, and as much responsibility, and all of these roles, and different kinds of things that we are involved with, and all of the information coming at once, there's a lot that can seem urgent right now. Urgent. But wisdom, self-control, here would choose the important over the urgent thing. And you've got to be able to grow at that. Uh, Another way to say it is, if we know God's view of us and our world we're able to live in accordance with that knowledge. Make sense? So it's like you've got a manual for what God says about the world and, and what things are and how we're to live in relationship to that. If, if we look at the manual and we sort of live in accordance with that, it goes well. If you don't, it doesn't go well. Now be careful because I know I can see it. I feel it. Some of you are getting uncomfortable. Why? Because we're checking down a checklist. And you remember I said I'm not going to leave it at a checklist. I'm going to show you why you can't live up to this checklist and how you can live in relationship to this checklist in a different way because of Jesus. So you've got to hang on with me. Will you hang on? Hang on with me. Okay. Thumbs up from Jim Sorge. Steadfastness. Steadfastness is another aspect of what growing, what we need to be diligent about, what we need to make every effort to do. Be steadfast. And the definition for steadfast here is a willingness to put up with tough times. Because of why? Because of the promise of better times. It's very simple. And Peter's, the th- one of the thrusts of Peter's letter here is the idea that we have an eternal hope. That Jesus is coming back. That he's going to judge and he's going to wipe away every tear for those who he's lived his life for and died his death for. And he's going to bring the nations in and the glories of the nations in and we will stand with him and reign with him in his family as a part of his kingdom. That's what it means to have steadfastness, that you're willing to put up the times that are tough because there's promised better times ahead. It's keeping going to the very end. It's loyalty, courage, be principle-driven committed. Um, have you ever done real work that you hate? I did a job once that I lasted exactly about six hours before I resigned. I was supposed to work eight hours. And I, I, after, it was basically, it was taking these note cards in a medical facility that were notes taken during patient visits 
and it was filing them away. It was just thousands of cards and thousands of numbers and correlations. And it was, I mean, I wasn't allowed to wear headphones and at least listen to music. I finally went to the manager. I said, I am so sorry. (laughs) I did need a job. I do need a job. But this isn't the one because I couldn't do it. And it was paying, you know, it wasn't paying very much. It was just a little bit above minimum wage. What would have happened if my paycheck would have been a million dollars a day? Would I have had the same reaction to enduring the hardness, the menialness of that task, of thumbing through each individual card, thousands of them at a time, and shuffling them through the filing system? I would have been whistling while I worked, right? It's the same thing with the gospel, and Peter, Peter points this out to us. Look, there are things that are rough in this world. It's not because God's not involved. He's so involved that he came to the cross. You've got to remember that. You've got to remember that he's so involved that he came to the cross, and he took death for you, and he took judgment for you, and he took wrath for you. He cares very deeply about the, the unraveling of the fabric of things because of the brokenness of sin. There's a place in Scripture that says that all of creation groans under the weight of our sin. Groans. So you're going to groan too. You're going to groan. But there's something at the end of that groaning that is wonderful. And, and Peter directs our attention to it. Okay, godliness is another thing. Godliness is a catch-all word for very practical awareness of God in every aspect of your life. One of the things I did when I was having an early kind of um, growth spurt in my faith, you know how you have those? If if you're not a Christian or you're a new Christian, one of the things that people don't tell you at the outset is that there are growth spurts. And sometimes you're like, wow, this is great. And other times you're like, oh, my word, what was that? I can't remember. You know, and, and the idea is that there's this cyclical thing that happens where you have a high point and you kind of sink down to a low point after time, and it's like you can't quite remember the high point, but you circle back up and you have another high point, right? And all of these things are kind of an arc upwards. He's, not, he's going to complete the work that he's begun with us. So you'll notice that high points are higher than the last high points, and low points are higher than the last low points. And so there's this constant trajectory up. One of the things I did early on was to just set, I had one of those sports watches, you know, like the Timex jobs that, that you can set like laps and hourly alarms and things like that. And so I just set the hourly alarm. And every hour at my desk, I was working, and that was my signal. Lord, thank you. Thank you for reminding me of you. How do you and what you've done for me affect this task that I'm doing right now? how do I need to remember that as I go about the task for the next hour? And I would set an hourly alarm just to remember him, just to redirect my attention towards him. Why? Because we need reminding. We need reminding. Godliness, practical awareness of God in every aspect of life. Are you practically aware of God in every aspect of your life? You're making a decision about where to move or what to do next or who to date or who not to date or who to spend time with, or whether or not you're going to make the sacrifice and actually spend the love and the time and the effort and the sacrifice that it needs to love this unlovely person who drains you instead of replenishes you. You're making those decisions. Are you aware, practically, of God in that process? Do you see? Are you aware? 
Is he a part of your decision-making process? So godliness and brotherly affection, here we are, Philadelphia, our favorite word, right? Brotherly affection. And what's interesting is that the very next word is agape. Let me tell you the difference. Philadelphia, of course, is a common term for relationships within the family unit. What I, what I found out in preparing for this week is that it is the only place, in the New Testament, that word is the only place that it's been found outside the context of an actual home. And it's applied to you as community in Christ as Christians. Philadelphia, love of brothers and sisters, the same kind of love that you would expect and experience in a home is the same kind of love that we need to make every effort for. We need to be diligent about. It needs to be like that. But he goes on to say, agape. I had a joke from Finding Nemo, but I won't do it because it's just not. You guys don't know that movie. I realized. I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to tell. What's that? Escape. Oh, no, that's Nemo. Okay. See, only a smattering of you got that because you don't know what Nemo is. It's all right. Uh, We said before, we've said all along, last year we talked about the idea that Philadelphia is not the only command we're given to love one another, but there's philoxenia as well. That's not the word here. He uses agape instead, but it means love of other. And here, Peter says agape is love for anyone, Christian or not. It's indiscriminate and deliberate habit of loving not just brothers and sisters, but those outside the family circle too, which means our city, our neighbors, our colleagues, our co-workers, people who don't know Jesus. Both kinds of love are supposed to be going on. All right, that's the list. How do you feel? Woo! You want to go out and do it? You want to go out and check it off? It's like a book you got off the bookshelf and say, yeah, in 21 days, it takes 21 days to form a new habit. In 21 days, I'm going to do all of these things together and I'm going to just be explosive in my life. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You'll never be able to grow in the knowledge of Jesus practically and richly and purposefully by trying really hard and checking off the checklist. It's not going to work. Why? Your heart needs something more than a checklist. Your heart needs a relationship with a living God. And so, one of the things that Peter's very important to point out for him, he says, look, there's a unity to these qualities. So he begins to stack it up. He begins to stack up your inability to do this, right? Each quality is coupled with the word with. With, 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 right? So you've got virtue, and you've got your virtue. And what does he say? Supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Do you feel the weight of that list? Do you feel the weight of that? In, in one of the parallel passages for the fruit of the Spirit, Peter In Galatians 5.22, he lists the fruit of the Spirit, love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And he does this big, long list, too. Very similar, similar things. Same kinds of things. God's character kind of things, right? Now, the interesting thing there is that, that Paul uses the word fruit in the singular. How many of you have heard the terms fruits, plural, of the Spirit? I've been learning about the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. That's not the way the Bible teaches it. The fruit, singular, 
of the Spirit are all these things. What does that mean for you? When you went down that, when we were going down the checklist, whether you were tempted to live up to it or you just felt like weighed down by it, either way, was there one thing that you identified with more particularly than the others? Is there one thing that you tended to say, hey, that describes me. I think I could, maybe I can't do the whole list, but I could do that one thing. I could do that one thing. That would be helpful. I could do that. The problem there is that they're one fruit. So that means that you don't look to where you're strongest or where you have the most affinity. You look at where you're the weakest. And that's the real level of grace growing in your life. For example, I can, because I have a, a more mild disposition, right? I tend to smile a lot and I like kindness. I could say, yeah, the fruit of the Spirit, kindness is the one that I'm about. I like to be kind. Can you feel it? Have you felt me be kind to you? Fruit of the Spirit. Well, why don't you take a look at home when I've had a very full day and I'm completely saturated with conversation and my daughter and my son and my wife and phone calls and emails are all wanting more attention from me. And why don't you come and look at my steadfastness or my patience at that point? Because the reality is that's where I need That's the real level of grace in my life. It's only at the level of the weakest fruit. So don't fool yourself. It's not about your strength. It's not about what you're good at. It's not about what you think you can accomplish on this list. It's just not. There's a unity to all of the qualities. And you're only as strong as your weakest quality. If you lack one, the reality is you lack them all. For example, if I lack patience at home, am I really kind? Right? I'm not. If you say, I like being truthful, I like virtue, I always pride myself on telling the truth, but you don't have the peace that comes from knowing God, that you have peace with God, and you're not at ease in your heart, and you tend towards anxiety, then it's not the truth reflected in your life. It's something else. It's some kind of fortitude, but it's not the fortitude that will change you. It's not the fortitude that you need to live life fully and abundantly. Peter says in verse 9 that if you lack these qualities, that you're ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to describe things. He says it's like being nearsighted. And I met with a group of guys, there are groups of guys praying each week together to pray for one another and look at a little bit at the gospel. And I, I, my group, the, guy, the group of guys that I'm in meets on Wednesdays, and we were looking at this verse. It just happened to overlap with what we were tracking with. And one of the things that Don and me was talking about is this idea of being nearsighted. You can't see what's far away, whether it's ahead of you or behind you. You can only see what's in front of your face. And so it was like, you know, I had this image of somebody sort of stumbling around and putting their hand on something like truth or virtue and saying, God, nice to see you, you know, or, or uh, goodness, God, nice to see you. And the thing that he created rather than he himself, I can't see it. It's not connected to Jesus. It's a thing in and of itself. It's something I can do. You understand? Peter says that's nearsightedness. It won't work. And then he likens to be blind, not seeing at all. 
you're not seeing at all if that's the way you're relating to this checklist. And he goes on to say, amnesia, right? Not remembering being cleansed from former sin. Not remembering being cleansed from former sin. What do you need to be effective and fruitful in your life? Remember that you were cleansed from your former sin. And we'll see how that begins to free you to live in a different relationship to a checklist like this when you see it in Scripture. Do you feel the weight of a list? Does it seem unimaginable to you? Or maybe you're like me, and you start, to, you start to actually add it up in your head, and you're like, that's how much is required of me. That's how much consistency. I know what it's like when I get tired. I know what it's like when I am exhausted. I know that I struggle with patience. I know then that that reflects upon my kindness and the other things that I would think are strong about who I am. I know that that's the case. And I feel the weight of that list. And sometimes I retreat. You remember, you remember the uh, Ken Sandy Peacemaker? Have you ever read Ken Sandy the Peacemaker? There's peacemaking as followers of Jesus. And then there's peace, peace faking and peace breaking. He draws a slope. And right up at the top of that slope, it's kind of slippery, is peacemaking. And there are particular qualities about godliness that, that make peace. But you can fall off that slope, either side. And you can peace fake or you can peace break. And my tendency is I can do either one, but my more when I'm that, when I'm exhausted at the end of the day, rather than patience and fruit of the Spirit, unified in what Christ has done for me, I will peace fake and I'll retreat and I'll fall off the side and I won't engage. I can't do it and neither can you. But the good news is, is there is one who has. There is one who has all of those qualities, who has been them perfectly as your representative. The Lord Jesus came to live the life that you should have lived. You should live this way. Peter tells you you should live this way. Your faith is not disconnected from living a particular way. But the reality is in and of yourself, you won't be able to do it. You just won't. But you have one who did, and you're in him. You're in the fact that he was true virtue on your behalf. He always told the truth. Satan, away from me. It's not bread alone that feeds men, but it's the very word of God that sustains me. You have one that died for you, that loved you enough to die for you. And so in him... What do we see? In verse 2, we see the other way that Peter uses the word knowledge. Remember in the list, it was knowledge about Jesus. It's book knowledge. It's theology. It's good theology. Theology is good. It's study of God. Study of who Jesus is. Study of what God has done, how he acts, what his character is like. That's good knowledge. The word he uses for knowledge here is personal knowledge. There's difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him personally. There's a difference between knowing about a man or a woman and knowing them personally in the context of a relationship, right? And that's the kind of knowledge that he's talking about here. Personal knowledge. And Jesus, in that personal knowledge of himself, challenges us to a godly life. And the thing that happens is that Jesus meets us 
in that challenge, and he meets the challenge for us on our behalf. What does verse 3 say? Verse 3 says, it's by his divine power. By his divine power. So he gives us the challenge, and he himself takes it up. By his divine power, and what? Through a knowledge of him. Through that kind of knowledge, through the personal relationship knowledge of him, he's given you all things pertaining to life and godliness. He's granted them to you. He's granted them to you. The word here for granted can mean a generous imperial gift or even volunteering for service. It's royal, official, divine bounty. He's granted to you everything that you need for life and for godliness. When you are under pressure, when you're struggling, when you're feeling uh, despairing, when you're feeling anxious, when you can't sleep at night, when you're hearing thoughts in your head that are coming across the, the bows of your ship, of your mind, and they are accusing thoughts and condemning thoughts and anxious thoughts and worrying thoughts. He's given you what you need. Do you feel like you don't have what you need? This is one of the first passages that I'll bring you to if we're working in counseling together. When you feel like, I don't have what I need here. My circumstance is not giving me what I need. This person who's offending me is not giving me what I need. We have everything we need for life and for godliness through what? Through a knowledge, through knowing him personally, knowledge of him. And that's how we begin to relate differently for that checklist. Jesus has given us all that could ever be required to be godly. Merely being Christians, merely being Christians if you know Jesus, if you accepted his work on your behalf, if you believed in him as living the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died and representing you before God right now, before the Heavenly Father, interceding for you, and that nothing can snatch you out of his hand, if that's true, if that's true, then we have everything we need for a godly life. That's what Peter is saying. Now, there's an encouragement there it means the gospel is sufficient for us to meet God's requirements. When you're suffering, how do you meet God's requirements? How do you live up? How do you do a checklist like this? How do you even relate to a checklist like this? You see Jesus as your checklist. You see him as your asset. You see him as your truth. You see him as your goodness. You see him as your virtue. All of these things that he went through, Jesus is those things for you. And as you see that, you know that you've been given everything you need. That's how it works. You start to wrap your mind around, it's not that I don't have enough. I have enough in him. It's not that I don't have enough of these external things over here that I need, that if I just had this piece of it, piece of life, then I'd be better. You have him, and he's enough, right? So there's encouragement. The gospel is sufficient for us to meet God's requirements, but there's also a warning. We have to face up to our accountability to him. Peter says, make every effort. He says, make every effort. If we're not accountable to him for what our spiritual growth looks like practically, day to day, what it means is the death of Christ is sufficient. It, it means a wrong view of the gospel. It means that we think the death of Christ is sufficient to bring us to God, but it's insufficient for living godly. Do you understand? And the reality is, Christian life and transformation in the Christian life and how you live an effective and fruitful Christian life all comes from the same gospel that saves you. It's the same gospel that grows you. 
that saves you. And it's through a personal knowledge of him. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied. I was talking with Ezra this week. He's liking science and math a lot. And I was talking with Ezra about the notion of compounding interest. And so we were talking about this idea of taking an asset and making it work for you. And so the asset is something, you know, that would put money into your pocket. And we talked about how, and we, he just did the math in his head. I had him do the math in his head. Take $2,000, right? And we did the math. And what does 20% on that look like over a course of a year earning interest? And so we did that. He said, okay, so I've got that number. Now take that number and make 20% over another year, you know? And so we, we did that until we started to build it up and see the magnitude of riches that's possible just with that principle of compounding interest. In the same way, grace and peace through a personal knowledge of Jesus, through knowing God personally, is multiplied. It's multiplied. And in that peace, verse 4, he's granted to us the great and precious promises. There are great and precious promises that God gives throughout all of Scripture. Great and precious promises. And he's given them to you. He's granted them to you. And what's more is that he said that the purpose of all this is that God calls us to his own glory and excellence. Watch this, Peter says, that we may become takers of the divine nature. What does that mean? He's not talking about God in us. It's not a kind of a new agey thing. He's talking about our relationship with God is one where God now sends his spirit to dwell in us. And he forms and shapes his character in us. We're still the created. He's the creator. Paul talks about that. About being in Christ. His famous phrase, in Christ. It's all throughout the New Testament. In Christ. Being united with Christ. Having Christ dwell in in us. His spirit dwell in us richly. It's relationship. And it's because of that relationship, therefore, that we make every effort. That we use all diligent to go after these kinds of character qualities in our lives. Many of you have giftedness. Many of you have giftedness in particular kinds of ways. Giftedness that, that, that you have been confirmed in and that you use for your job, and that you use for your schooling, and that you use in your family life, there's giftedness. But it's more important in the gospel that you live out of character, who you are, rather than giftedness, what you do. And in the gospel, living out of character, God's character formed in you, showing his qualities more and more, is what Peter says in verse 10, confirms your calling and election. That's how inseparably it's wed to your faith in Christ. That you should see character, his character, being formed in you. And he says, verse 11, this is the way. This is it. This is the way. If you're going to proclaim Christ, if you're going to say, I believe in him, I believe in what he's done for me, it's got to be reflected in character growth in you in very practical ways day to day. It's got to happen. Because Peter says, verse 11, this is the way that an entrance into the Lord's kingdom is richly provided for you, right? Again, not your strength, his strength, provision for you. He stood in for you so that you can relate to being somebody different. You are somebody different. Live in line with the truth of the gospel, Paul says in another place. Walk in step, keep in step with the truth of the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you 
You tell us what's right from wrong. And then you live life that's right on our behalf so that we can come to you freely, not out of fear, not out of pride, but freely in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ so that virtue becomes not a thing that we need to do because we're afraid of judgment, not a thing that we need to do because we think we're proud of the way that we live up to truthful standards, but we have freedom to tell the truth because it's participation with you and your character and it's seeing your spirit form your character in us. So be with us, Lord. We need you. We need to depend on you. When we see checklists like this, help it not to crush us and help us not to feel like we can somehow live up, but let us instead know you, Jesus, as our checklist, as our asset, as the very thing that transforms us, the very person. Be with us now as we continue to worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.